Today's episode is brought to you by the Consultancy Growth Network. As you'll know, I'm a big believer in learning from people who've achieved the things that you want to. It's why I run this podcast, to share the stories of consulting leaders and how they've got to where they are today. So when I started talking to Mark Janssen and the team at Consultancy Growth Network, it was clear there was an obvious fit between Climate Consulting and their mission and what they are building with their network. But you're probably asking, what is the Consultancy Growth Network? The Consultancy Growth Network is the leading community of boutique consulting leaders. It brings together seasoned consulting growth experts who successfully scaled their own boutiques, with rapidly growing consulting founders looking to emulate their success. Now, you might be thinking, who are these growth experts? What do they actually know about consulting? And this is one of the most exciting things that personally I find about the network. The team at the Consultancy Growth Network have searched far and wide for some of the best boutique consulting leaders to help their members on their journeys, some of which I have previously interviewed for this podcast, such as Don Morehouse and Augusto Negrillo. But it's not just the insights from these people that you will benefit from. By joining, you get access to their jam-packed calendar of regular in-person and online events, their comprehensive growth hub of resources, and their active Slack community. Through all of these channels, you can learn, solve challenges, and achieve the goals you want for your firm. And now if that wasn't enough reason to sign up, the Consultancy Growth Network is giving all listeners to this podcast a special sign-up offer. If you join for 12 months, you join for that next year, you will get your 13th month for free, giving you that extra month to continue to build on everything you're learning and continue to benefit from the network. To sign up, just visit consultancygrowthnetwork.com or contact their partnerships director, Luke, at luke at consultancygrowthnetwork.com. And when you're talking about joining, mention Create Engage or Climbing Consulting, and you will get that special sign-up offer. Hi, and welcome to today's episode of Climbing Consulting. In this one, we talk about a topic that is hugely important and gets a lot of press. But rarely do we hear it talked about in a real, in a raw, in a candid way. What is that topic? The answer is mental health. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking to Chris Southwell, partner at the Barclay Partnership. Chris's journey is as inspiring as it is empowering. Having started on a council estate in Dundee, he worked his way through school and university to land himself his first role at Accenture. No mean feat given his roots and something that he experienced a ton of imposter syndrome about. And we talk all about that today. Fast forward, though, and it was the deeply disturbing moment on the platform on his commute to work that led Chris to check himself into the Priory, the well-known mental health clinic. Rather than tell you all about what happened next, I will leave Chris to do that in a moment. But what he shares in this episode is a hugely open and hugely honest account of his journey and the advice that he now follows and he gives to others as a result of it. But this isn't the only thing we talk about in today's episode. It's one of the key topics, but we do cover a whole range of other points, including Chris's upbringing and how he was able to turn that from something he saw as a disadvantage into something that gave him strength and a motivating force. We talk about his journey to partner and why a small detour out of consulting helped him to make that final leap to becoming a partner. And we talk about parenting and why Chris is a big believer in parenting loudly. If you are currently wrestling with your own mental health challenges, or maybe you are feeling on top of the world and you just want to keep your mental health as good as it can be, you are going to find this episode 
so valuable. So with the intro over, all that is left is to say please enjoy today's conversation with Chris Southwell. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, I'm looking forward to this. As we know, I was introduced by my old colleague, Charlie Smith, whose opinion I very much respect. And when he said, you were the person I should speak to, obviously, after he told me he'd moved to Berkeley, I jumped at the chance. So I'm very excited to have you on the show. Thank you for making the time. For our listeners, though, it'd be great if you could just, so they can place you, give a bit of your background and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, of course. So I guess if we go way back, I... <laughs> very much kind of focused my education around problem solving, very much focused on, so a bit of context, I'm kind of first in my family to go to university, so I was very focused on that. Then very focused and obsessed, absolutely obsessed with getting a graduate scheme. And at that point, I didn't really know what consulting was, but I knew that I like meeting new people. I knew that I'm a problem solver. Um, and indeed, in, in my childhood, I had to be a problem solver at various points. So it seemed quite natural in that regard. And then uh, I went to Accenture as a, a business, with a business degree. I was somewhat surprised to then be get, given a, a DBA role as my first role at Accenture. Uh, so quite a technical role. And then stayed at Accenture for eight years, right? And absolutely loved my time at Accenture, learned a whole bunch of things uh, without kids and uh, wife, traveled quite a lot, was exposed to a whole bunch of new industries. But then there was kind of motivations, uh, kind of eight years in, there was motivations and drivers for me looking elsewhere, um, which we can unpack uh, throughout the conversation. And then I joined Barclay. So I've been at Barclay for 12 years and a partner, it's my third year as a partner here. Amazing. Well, a very succinct summary, Chris. I, just because I'm, I'm curious, I always get interested in things I didn't know before and just pique my interest. I don't usually go to childhood, but you mentioned you had to be a problem solver. Can I ask why? Yeah, of course. Um, so I think it's fair to say I didn't have the most kind of traditional upbringing. So early on, I had to be quite organized, uh, a problem solver and at times a mediator. So truth be told, I, did, I had quite a chaotic childhood. So mom and I kind of grew up together. Uh, she was 17 when she had me. So didn't have the skills to, to be a parent. And unfortunately, uh, made some bad choices in regards to folks. So my biological father was extremely violent and ended up in prison um, because of various things that happened with him, mom and I. And early on, I had to be kind of someone who was kind of resilient, um, had to be someone who was very organized. And therefore, school, I absolutely loved school. School was structure. School was safety. School was my route out. And I remember being like seven or eight and really having this kind of decisive moment of this is how I get out of the kind of context that I, I was living in. So for the context, kind of council say in Dundee, quite lively. I think it's fair to say. <laughs> um, I also kind of remember often, and I say it to my boys now, and they just look blankly at me. But I often remember kind of that shame of being the kids in the in the separate line for free school meals, and that kind of <laughs> that kind of doesn't really leave you, regardless of how successful you are in your career. But yeah, so but school for me was, I, I was obsessed, as I said, with getting to university. So the first of my family to go to university and kind of providing kind of stability 
and uh, both emotional and financial stability for my kids. So yeah, not not many people from uh, kind of the hill town in Dundee have made their way to London, I would suspect. But um, that's kind of the the non traditional path I had into consulting. Wow. Well, th- thank you for sharing. And and I suspect that answers the question I was going to have about why you felt you had to get a grad scheme. But I never like to assume was, was that the driver you you. You'd reached that educational pinnacle, as it were. You'd got to university. Was that grad scheme that that ticket out? Yeah, I think um, I think it was. It gave me a route not to have to go back to Dundee. To be frank, at the time when I was graduating, there was loads of kind of horror stories around people that have never managed to get a, a, a job that's linked to their degree. Studying, so I think I was I benefited from doing a business degree, so I was very focused on going into business and coming to London. But I I was forensic around how I applied to grad schemes. I definitely did a, a bunch of kind of psych analysis on performativity at assessment centers. I was kind of ruthless in my prep uh, for those grad assessment centers. And in a way, kind of proved proven out the hypothesis that if you really interrogate a company's website and kind of in those days, kind of uh, message boards rather than Glassdoor, and understand what are the competencies and values that the organization are looking for, and then perform to them in an assessment center environment. Uh, it works, right? Because I, I tried that a number of grad schemes, and, and, and it went well. But Accenture for me was a, a definite, wow, I've made it. Um, the sign-on bonus also helped in those days, clear quite a lot of overdrafts that I'd managed to rack up at university. But for me, there was a there was an element of validation there, right? There was an element of this has all been worth it, and I've got a, on on the the first step to a, a career that provides that variety and problem solving experience. There's something in what you said around your upbringing and and the free school meals because I I love by the way, and we might come back to it. Your kind of approach to graduate schemes. What you touched on around your upbringing and that kind of feeling of you know you were the kid who'd been in the free school meal aisle. How did that, or did it have an impact when you were applying for these graduate jobs, which may have been perceived to be for you know the rich kids that you hadn't been to school with? That's the the preconception of things like consulting. How did your upbringing impact that, and was it ever a consideration or a concern as you were applying for these jobs? Yeah, it's interesting. I was, I think, in many ways, I'm grateful for my kind of childhood because it gave me a, a really strong sense of motivation. It gave me a really strong sense of what I want for my children. It gave me a really strong sense of, right, it proved to me if you apply yourself and if you're focused, you can get whatever you seek to attain in life. I think I was so obsessed and focused with getting the the jobs. It wasn't at that point I was concerned around, will I be seen as an imposter? Will that feel awkward? Will I have things in common or natural kind of connects with people? When I joined Accenture, it was very clear that I was an outlier in background. It was very clear from from little things like where people have holidayed, kind of what people's parents did. And then on programs, it was the same. So kind of when you when you have to kind of answer that your mom's on benefits, that is that is difficult. I found that difficult. And I think in my early years in consultant, I wore a lot of shame around my kind of childhood. I wore a lot of uncomfortable clothes around my kind of childhood. Um, and it's not until later uh, when actually I see it as a, a sign of kind of something to be oddly kind of proud of in terms of my mobility through that situation. So I've broken a cycle, right? I've broken a cycle of benefit dependency. I've broken a cycle of kind of 
financial instability. And my children have a very different upbringing to the childhood I had. But there's no victimship here, right? It's, it, it, as I say, everyone's got a story. How you lean into that story and what you take from that to then motivate you to move forward is just different for everyone. Mm. Because you, you highlighted that shift, and it, it might be through other parts of your journey, we'll talk about it. How did you, to use your words of kind of wearing it, how did you shed those clothes? I think that working harder to kind of achieve the promotion point, to get the feedback, demonstrating that I can keep pace with the other kids that maybe gone to kind of different schooling systems, really focusing on kind of my client relationships. So I, whilst I have many uh, flaws, my, my, my strength is relationships. My strength is I can build relationships with everyone from kind of cleaner to CEO and just be really focused on that and being centered on what is true and valuable to me. And that is relationships and just keeping anchored to that. And then as I move through different promotion points and different laddering systems at Accenture and, uh, and the rest, I began to realize, okay, I am good enough. Like I can keep pace. But you always have that determination. You always have that kind of steeliness to say, right, I want to, I want to achieve that next point quicker. I want to, I want to be a leader in this organization or what have you. So I think it eased over time. But that's not to say I don't have moments now, right? I'm a partner in a successful business. I definitely still have moments of insecure overachiever. I definitely still have moments when <laughs> that kind of little imposter, <laughs> that kind of seven-year-old boy is, is talking to me saying, what are you doing here? Um, and that's fine, right? That's fine. And in some ways that keeps me kind of humbled. It keeps me focused. It's important that I check in on myself in those moments. It's important I recognize this is familiar. It's important I recognize this too shall pass. <laughs> and you kind of scent yourself on, but you know you're good at A, B, and C. But I think that's a healthy, I think personally it's a healthy tension for me to have because it makes sure that I don't become complacent. And it's interesting what you say there around that imposter syndrome and completely, to your point, given the, the background you have and the, the journey you've been on, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I, you've obviously also, you're a partner now, you mentor other colleagues here at Barclay. I'm sure you've spoken to a lot of people about it. Do you find that imposter syndrome is reserved for those from council estate backgrounds or actually is that something you see in all consultants you know, i've heard people talk about consultants it might have even been in our pre-call that you said you know we're all a bunch of insecure overachievers do you, do you find that across the board yeah i don't think it's um exclusive to coming from a council estate i think um, we're in an industry where oftentimes people expect you to be the smartest and person in the room and an expert in the room and we can't be an expert at everything right so depending on the industry you're working in the type of assignment you're working in there is an element of being confident in the gray and being comfortable with ambiguity and working it through and i think that that must be that is and difficult for a lot of people regardless of where your starting point was yeah and i liked what you said around how you I guess, bring yourself back to that center when you do have those concerns because, and maybe the, the way to ask that for others is you know, how do you guide them on you? You obviously have quite a, now it sounds like an approach to getting yourself back to, you know, knowing who you are, if you do get that imposter syndrome, how do you guide others, you know, your mentees, others that report to you to do the same? Yeah. So I think, um, two of the most common pieces that I'll work with kind of consultants or consultants on is kind of building up that strength finder mentality, right? Building up that, okay, so it has been a difficult steerco or it has been a, a, a bumpy period on a, on a program of work because 
and that's to be expected, right? The work we do at Barclay is always complex. There's no kind of naughty, easy jobs. So therefore, you have to go into it with an expectation that there are going to be kind of moments of tension, uh, difficulty, complexity that you need to work through. Not everything will go kind of sterling all of the time. So it's okay not to be okay. Focus on strength finders. Focus on what what strengths have you exhibited this week or delivered this week that you want to build on for the week ahead. And then just be kind to yourself around the things that didn't go well and focus on what, what you would do differently next time. So I, I think it's important as well to, to help people unpack it objectively and not catastrophize at a given moment. Focus on the strengths and focus on what we could do differently next time with the benefit of hindsight, right? It makes a lot of sense. I love that strength finder piece. It's very easy to focus on what we haven't done. And in yeah, an industry where, you know, I don't know if it's still the same, but I remember the first thing that got picked up on slides was that my aerial size 12 was also aerial size 14 somewhere else in the day. It, yeah. <laughs> it's naturally how we're wired, I think. Yeah, exactly. And I see it when I'm giving feedback as well, that people kind of are half listening to the positives, but they're waiting for the areas of development, right? <laughs> they're waiting for the, okay, okay, that's fine, but, but, but what do I need to work on? And it's important to bring people back and say, right, can we just go through those positive pieces again? Can we just go through those strengths again? Because I want you to hear your strengths <laughs> rather than jumping to the, oh, but you didn't like it when I did X, Y, and Z. So I think it's, it's a muscle that needs training. I completely agree. And it's the, I can't remember who this is, but the kind of double down on your strengths. Mm. You know, actually, if you fix your weaknesses, all all you'll get to is about average. Whereas if you double down on those strengths, you know, yes, you need to round off certain things, but yeah. you can often go further. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. No, I completely, completely buy into that. I think this might be a good point to go into. You've talked about sort of how you got to that mentality. I'm conscious you know, your journey with mental health itself has been quite a big part of your your yeah. story. And I want to come on to Barclay and, and your time there, because I know there's some interesting pieces in in your road to partner. But I think just because we've moved into mental health, would you be happy to share your journey and some of those challenges you've had? Because I think you know, more than most consultants, you know, you've you've been on a bit of a roller coaster, it's probably a fair thing to say, Chris. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So as a person, I'm a perfectionist control freak. Right, that is who I am, and I, <laughs> I am comfortable with knowing and self-aware enough to know that that is going to be my DNA. I'm also a fixer, right? So I fix things and organize things for people I've done all my life, and that's kind of where my identity and kind of self-worth is wrapped up in. So probably around kind of now looking back six or so years ago, I had quite a spectacular breakdown, and that was linked to being a new dad and the excessive pressure I put on myself to be this perfect, balanced, emotionally resilient parent, very much kind of counter to what I'd experienced. So I put an unhealthy amount of perfectionism on me with a, with a newborn. Obviously, as a new dad, you're also pretty tired. Therefore, your resilience, it's not what it should be. I was present and involved in kind of two close family members passing, which again, you can't control that. Um, that kind of spins you out slightly and there was some other kind of complications in relationships and i remember clear as day being stood at clapham junction coming into work uh, at any other normal day i was aware on some level that my kind of mental health had been deteriorating but i was not prepared for the kind of realization to be stood at clapham junction and thinking now i get it i completely get why people choose a different route i completely get that actually, it's got really difficult for me. It's got really dark for me. And whilst I don't think I was at the point where I would have kind of 
kind of stepped in front of the train or did that, it was quite scary to then have that realization of, I understand how someone gets into that headspace. So that was quite a dark and kind of troubling moment for me. I then make my way into the office and get asked how I am by my now a fellow partner at the time, kind of a partner working my job, Hadley. And I completely fell apart, completely fell apart. And Hadley caught me. He saved me. Barkley absolutely moved all obstacles to me just getting well. So then within 24 hours, I was at the Priory. And that was unusual. Uh, I'd never I've had a lot of therapy since, but I'd never had therapy or been in kind of any talking therapy programs before. It's not really something that people in my family and kind of where I'm from do go and talk to a therapist. But I did the work. I got better. And it'd be easy to say, well, that was then and this is now and I'm a rock star. But um, truth be told, it it is always going to be a muscle that I have to work on. It is... COVID, the joy of COVID and homeschooling definitely sent my anxiety through the roof again. So I went back into therapy at that point. Uh, Again, trying to balance being a a program manager, a home teacher to a five-year-old boy who had no interest in writing, and my wife being a frontline social worker. Uh, That was a, a, a period of distress as well. And at a regular point since then, I've gone back into therapy. And when I made partner, so kind of two two plus years ago here, I stood up at our kind of all hands, our, our monthly, where we have the whole firm together. And as a new partner, kind of shared my uh, mental health journey, which surprised a lot of people. My normal kind of uh, style is extreme extrovert, amiable, kind of life and soul of the party. So that was a bit of a surprise to a lot of people. But it was really important to me that I was vulnerable. It was really important to me that I just kind of shared my story with no filter. It was really important to me that people, there could have been a perception of, oh, you've just made a partner, you've got it all, you've got two healthy kids. I mean, a lovely, very, very, very patient wife. (laughs) All is good. But the reality is, is I myself, I'm work in progress, right? I I will continue to be work in progress. And I, I I wanted to normalize and remove the taboo around mental health at Barclay. And then since then, over the last couple of years, we've built out a, a range of kind of support mechanisms and it's an always on conversation. But I mean, to, to be frank, in the last six months, I've been back in therapy, right? Because for me, I see it as like, if you've overindulged over Christmas and you're looking at your body and you're not feeling great and you know you're feeling a bit sluggish, you go to a PT, don't you? You, you go to the gym, you take action, you do some work to get you in a better, better place. And I'm very much like that with my mental health. When something distressing has happened, I, I want to do a, a kind of a PT workout on my mind, right? I want to go back into therapy and we, we partner with a company called Hello Self here who give you kind of three sessions to kind of almost like a bit of a, a check-in on yourself and do the work with a clinician. Um, and for me, that's really helpful to go back and say, right, these feelings are familiar. This will pass. You've been here before. You know what to do. You've got the tools to, to get yourself out of this period. And I think that's important. And I think that actually, in a weird way, becomes a, a strength. Uh, it almost becomes a bit of a superpower that I've been at that point and I've done the work to be better in my head. And I think that's important. And I, and I will probably now always be that way. I'll probably always be that way where uh, I regularly have to check in on myself. And if things aren't in equilibrium, then do the work. Um, but I feel quite fortunate that I know how to do the work. I feel quite fortunate in an environment where 
I'm supported and there's no stigma attached to it. The partners knew about my mental health history when I was going through the partner making process. Did that hold me back? No. Were they appreciative of the fact I've been completely open? Yes. And I think that's a key thing that I tell other people is, is don't be frightened of being vulnerable. Don't be frightened of opening up because there's no shortage of people that want to support you. Thank you, Chris. And I think really powerful you know, to hear your story and actually lots of questions off that because I don't think I've, I'm trying to wrap my brains and I don't want to cause offense to previous guests. I don't think I've had anyone who has had a similar experience. Or has, uh, I don't want to say had, has shared a similar experience. And I think it's very refreshing hearing you talk so openly. I love, by the way, your point around the the PT and the, I guess, the mental trainer, if you, you, know, if you want to sort of paraphrase it. And lots of questions. I might just, we'll see, we'll see where they go. I, I think the first one, to your point of when you shared it with the, the team, you know, what was that reaction? You share it in all hands. What, what happened next? So it was mixed. There were some people that got upset, physically upset about me kind of sharing, I guess, the art of the kind of crisis point for me, which made me feel a bit bad. <laughs> they were upset by that. But I was just overwhelmed by kind of the gratitude that people had. So I was just overwhelmed and really touched, to be honest, around how many people said, you're you standing up there and being so courageous and sharing yours has made a massive difference to me and my ability to then be open. I think that I was worried about standing up there, right? I, I was probably one of the most nervous moments of my career, if I'm completely honest, because it is so exposing. Like sharing something like that is is hugely exposing. But in the back of my mind, I had, well, these are your people. Like these are your these are your people. And I don't mean that from an employer employee perspective. I mean, these are the people I want to spend and choose to spend a lot of my life with. Therefore, if you can't be vulnerable and open with this group, then go figure. But overall, it was just this resounding kind of reinforcement of that was a really uh, transparent and valuable thing to do because then it's allowed other people to be open with their part with their partners or reflect and check in on themselves. And that was kind of the purpose, right? It was to remove taboo. But if there was anyone in the organization that's having a hard time and thinking around, I just don't feel myself to magnify and signpost the help that we have available here and elsewhere to do the work, to check in on yourself and check in on each other. Amazing. And then to your point of therapists, and this is, I think, a fascinating topic because Mental health has become a much more prominent topic in, in the world of work today. Yeah. And yeah, you could say for better and for worse, and some of it is there's now, you could speak to a lot of people about your mental health. You've got life coaches, coaches, therapists, psychiatrists. As someone who you have had professional help, you continue to, what is your perspective? I mean, maybe the, rather than ask for a judgment, what type of person did you see or do you still see? And if someone says, you know, Chris, I, I've got mental health. I'm feeling like my, you know, to your point, I'm feeling like I need to talk to someone. Is there a type of therapist you send you send them to or point them at? So I'm blessed that I've got loads of really good friends who will listen and over a coffee or a pint kind of hear me out. I've got a very patient wife who will listen sometimes and help hear me out. Um, but there's something for me truly valuable about having someone that doesn't know your environment, doesn't know your relationships, um, hasn't got any connections or bias to you as an individual that can listen non-judgmentally in that kind of, and allows you the space for clarity of thought. So oftentimes in therapy, I'll say things out loud and I think, 
wow, what a damaging thing to say to yourself. But when you articulate it out uh, and it's, you kind of expose it from your mind to your mouth and then you just hear it in the room, you think, wow, that is incredibly unkind. And that's helpful. That, that's helpful to then think, right, okay, so I need to do something around when that voice is saying uh, that, that particular thing or passing that judgment on myself. I need, to, I need to disconnect that. And some of the coaching conversations I've had so in terms of professional coaching conversations have also been to that effect, actually. Clearly, so most of the partners at Barclay are kind of qualified coaches. And when I was doing my highest stretch role at, uh, at Barclay as a consultant, so leading a, a large program, every day feeling a little bit out of my depth, um, uh, I had both the listening partner, so the partner on the job, kind of giving me kind of, kind of direction and advice and chewing things through. But then I had another partner who didn't know the client, hadn't worked with me, who I had 90 minutes with every fortnight. And, and again, to get to that clarity of thought, Mark was fantastic at unlocking a level of performance and managing down my kind of insecure overachiever voice um, around just giving you that space to articulate things, get the clarity of thought and think, oh, it's that. What? I'm an idiot. It's that. That's the thing that I've been wrestling with for so long. And just having that safe space where it's, again, listening non-judgmentally and not being directive. Because I think as consultants and myself as a partner, right, I want to I, I give someone the answer. I want to. I want to give someone the solution. Like when my wife's moaning about her work, I, I, I try and solve problems for her, which is not what she always wants or values. But I, it's inherent in us, I find, to kind of jump to solution and say, "Well, I can fix this. I can fix this." And it's really important to have those people in your life who are just listening, who don't want to fix it for you, who let you work through um, and get to the answer yourself. Because oftentimes, that's the most impactful and illuminating pieces when you just being allowed the safe space with someone that's just listening, just listening, not jumping to answer, and then you figure it out yourself, and then you own that far deeper, I think. I completely get what you're saying there. There's an interesting question. I ask this more because I imagine someone listening might ask it of, in some ways, having someone who doesn't know you, it's kind of private, as it were, like, no, there's no judgment. In other ways, it's a stranger, and there's everything that's wrapped up with it being a stranger. You know, to your point, you, you tell your wife something, you've got all of the years you've had together, you've got that connection. It sounds like in your case, it, it was necessary and you just dived into it. But was there a getting comfortable with that phase, you know, telling a stranger or your, you know, your deepest, darkest feelings, secrets, what, you know, whatever that was? Mm. So I've had, I guess, over the last few, six years, I've had kind of three or four therapists over that period. And that initial chemistry is really important, right? To, to your point of it's a stranger, a, a great therapist immediately kind of engineers a chemistry and engineers a, a safe kind of space and a bit of contracting. Um, I have met one therapist in the past where I'm like, this is just not going to work. Like there's there's something here. We're like oil and water. This is not going to be uh, kind of a an easy conversation for me. Just because it might illuminate. Is that just a gut feeling? Is that, is that kind of, how did you, yeah, how, how did you realize so quickly? You're not for me, the rest are. I think for that particular therapist, it was tone and statements like, well, you shouldn't feel like this. And I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> That's why I'm here. I don't need to then hear that again. <laughs> um, so I think there was a, a tone and an empathy. And a, you you want to feel in a safe psychological space. You want to be your most vulnerable. You want to say the things that you mean perhaps wouldn't say easily to your wife or best friend, right? You want to be in that uh, space that feels kind of 
safe and nurturing. So that initial chemistry, and I would always, I would advocate to anyone, if you're trying therapy for the first time, and if that first session has felt really difficult, and you are not willing and uh, enthusiastic about going to the next session, then then switch therapists, right? It's really important that you understand that chemistry from day, and you do that contracting from day one. I, and I wouldn't write off therapy just because you've met one awkward therapist, right? I think that's really important as well. I mean, like insulting like the clients, you, you meet people that you don't immediately gel with it'd be naive to think that would be the case with therapists as well and just because you you've used the term and, and i know i mentioned around sort of yeah i've heard of coaches and life coaches and, and therapists this is maybe a really naive question is therapist a defined you know a bit like a doctor is it because you mentioned about clinician is there a medical therapist that you know if someone listening to this was googling mm. How can they tell the difference between a, the therapist in your context and you know, someone who's done a life coaching course for a weekend? And do they need to tell the difference? I guess would also be a question. So it's interesting. So I've I've definitely seen clinicians in the past when and with that becomes a certain for me comes a certain amount of credibility. Like they're they're kind of a medical clinician. They've been through relevant training and at the crisis at a crisis point. That's the I want to go to credible. I want to go to a clinician. I want to go to someone that's kind of coming in from the, the medical side as well. But then there's been other points where I've, to use your language, kind of life coach, where I've I've gone with someone who is maybe focused on kind of running a 360 program for me, 360 feedback program, and I don't need a, a clinician for that. That's more about kind of understanding where my strengths are and getting some feedback and working that into a development plan for myself. So I think it's different modes based on and for me, I'm not saying this is the case for everyone, it's different modes based on how acute your the mental health difficulties that you're having at the time. But I've had very successful kind of coaching sessions and kind of life that life coaching sessions that have not been and they've they've delved into my mental health, but they haven't been qualified in a in a medical sense, um, which have worked. So I think it's different gears for for different periods. No, that makes sense. And and it's worth saying it was not to be derogatory to anyone who is a life coach. I think it's the as I say, I think that in a good way, there's now more people servicing this, you know, this market. Yeah. To your point of PTs, there are now more mental trainers or mental health trainers and actually understanding those differences. And just to what you touched on there, Chris, around knowing when your mental health challenge is more acute. The obviously you've been on a journey with this and that that infers just a sense of understanding. You know, a bit to your point, if you use the physical analogy, like my leg hurts, I need to see a GP, or my leg hurts, I need to see a surgeon because it's falling off, isn't always something people know if they've not you know, experienced that or you know, been in sport or something along those lines. Mm. How do you stay attuned to that? And, and this may be almost too personal to generalize, so you can tell me, is how do you know when it is acute? And, and are there triggers that when you've spoken to other people, like there's commonality in those things? Yeah, so I would say it's different for different people. But my when I'm when I'm experiencing so my thing's anxiety, right? I'm I've I've had a period of the kind of clap and junction example I gave earlier. That was anxiety and depression. I, that was a a low, my kind of rock bottom. But now my thing is anxiety, right? That's the thing that I will typically get therapy for. And for me, that manifested a very physical way. So I can't eat. I go through periods where I I, I find it difficult to eat. Uh, overly anxious and then my wife will always know when i'm kind of going through those periods because i'm obsessively organized so when i'm working through difficulties it's very common for me to be emptying every single cupboard in the house reorganizing it 
color coding things. When your Mary Kondo comes out, that's when you've <laughs> yeah. got to go to therapy. <laughs> it's like front facing tins in a cupboard, like being obsessed with order and structure, kind of <laughs> over reliance on my one note. Like that's my natural reaction to when I'm feeling anxious. Which some of which is fine. My, my wife finds that very helpful to keep an order. I hardly has. But but when it when it gets too much, that's when I'm like, okay, so what's going on here? What's what's fueling this kind of both physical uh, symptom and mental uh, symptom? And that for me is when I, I need to do them do the work and check in and think. Right, you need to, you need to do some talking therapy to understand what's going on here. And appreciate they're quite. They're very personal and specific, but I, I think that's really useful, you know, whether it's someone's mental health or, you know, whether it is, I mean, I always find holidays and it's slightly different, but you know, you need a holiday when certain things happen. And I, I think what you're yeah. saying for a similar for mental health is yeah, you, you, if you keep an eye out for these things, you realize actually, yeah, something, something needs to change. Yeah. And your point on holidays is, is a good one, right? Cause I'm, I'm religious about taking all of my holiday. I'm religious about always. I can't go two months without taking time to recharge. And I, I come down quite hard on consultants around me who are not using their holiday and rolling on five days or 10 days leave because I do think it's important to step out, step back in. I do think it's important to recharge. I do think it's important to switch off. We have kind of busy, kind of complex, challenging clients. It is important to kind of safeguard that kind of safe space. So I'm kind of quite religious about that. And also just regularly checking in myself and having that conversation with with kind of fellow partners around actually I'm not feeling great right now and I think I think I need to do A, B, and C. I, I completely agree with you on holiday. I think having been a consultant, things in twelve week stints is just burnt into me. And so after twelve weeks, so yeah. I, I go a little longer than you, but after twelve weeks, I have to have a break. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah, I, I went a little longer before uh, in the summer because we had a big holiday coming up, and I really noticed it when I got back. Yeah. And I think the last piece on yourself, and I do want to turn to your kind of advice for others in spotting mental health challenges in colleagues, is obviously you've been on this journey for the last six years. You know, you, like you said, it's like health, it's like physical health. You've got to keep it up. Mm -hmm. uh, what are the things, it might be holiday that we've touched on, but what are the things that you do now consciously to keep yourself in that mental you know keep yourself mentally healthy avoid the anxiety as much as you can are there any specific things in your you know your daily routine your life that you've changed to enable or improve that so there's three things there's three things i swear by there's exercise which sounds kind of cliche but if i don't go so i'm uh, a lockdown purchase a peloton freak um, <laughs> so if i don't go on the peloton three times a week i really notice it in terms of my temperament i really notice it in terms of my energy I sound like i'm advertising peloton but i really know you can give your uh, affiliate code at the end <laughs> yeah. for a set. So, so i really feel and notice the difference when i've not done some physical exercise i also am a big fan of the car map so kind of i commute into waterloo it's a 30 minute journey at least twice a week i'll i'll listen to uh normally some kind of meditation music kind of focus on focus on that and then also i think it's really important it's something i'm trying to teach the kids um is just at the end of every week, just name five things you're really grateful for. Like just practice gratitude. Yeah, we've all had a tough week and things, weather plans, weather have changed our plans for the weekend or uh, we have a disagreement with someone we care about. But just, I think there's something really powerful about just being rooted in gratitude and just having five things every week that you're really grateful for. And I, I find 
uh, and it's a struggle with a, an eight-year-old and five-year-old to get them to adopt this mentality right now. But I find it's really important for me at the end of a week just to be present and rooted in that gratitude because then there's things to my strength finders but there's then you can take forward to the next week right it, for me it rewires my whole neural pathway around actually there's a bunch of goodness in this week just carry that on and yes acknowledge the kind of failures acknowledge the difficult the difficulty you've had but be focused and rooted in gratitude i find that massively helpful to me and kind of my overall mental health I love that. And and I do think in our industry, to your point of insecure overachievers, it can sometimes get lost, particularly if, you know, if you're always focusing on the next grade or the next, you know, step, actually remembering where you've been, where you've gone. And if you're in consulting, life is probably okay as a starting point yeah, is, yeah, is a good yeah, thing to remember. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we touched on, obviously you shared this with your colleagues and I, and, and this is where I say, I think mental health has become much more prominent. There is a kind of LinkedIn version of mental health where lots of people share things. But I, I, I don't know, but I do wonder if there's also a lot of people where they don't share that. You know, you said you didn't share it until, you know, really you, you had that kind of breakdown. Almost, and this may be something you and the team have done training, what, what do you look for in colleagues to, I guess, see if they're okay? You know, to your point, now you're a partner, you have project teams under you. Yeah. What are you looking for for signs of people who are going through similar things? Because those aren't always obvious. Not everyone posts on LinkedIn to say they're having a mental breakdown. No, exactly. So it's a really interesting topic that we've discussed internally within the partnership. And we've driven out a period of kind of education for us as, as a group of partners as well. So we've had ex external help to come in and kind of train us in the importance and unpacking mental health and how to spot the signs. And we're in a really unique, unblessed position, right, as partners. We have one-to-ones, so every job at Barclays got a partner on the job, so therefore there's a high kind of partner consultant kind of collaboration on all of our work. We're there for in a unique position whereby we can check in on our consultant every single week, sometimes multiple times a week. So we have this concept called listening, which is kind of where the consultant gets to unpack and kind of chew through whatever is going on on the engagement of the project. And that can take many modes. It can take, I think I'm on top of this, but I just want to run through where we think we are. It can take, a, I just want to vent because it's actually really difficult. I need some direction. I've never done an model job before. And obviously Barclays model is we round everyone out to do every single type of work to be a true transformation specialist. So sometimes kind of our newer joiners will just need some direction. And sometimes it's co-create and we'll just whiteboard stuff. Before all of that, we're kind of committed and consistent at asking three key questions at the start of every listening scenario, a session rather. And that is checking in on them. So, and we ask the question, how is your well-being? How are you sleeping? And sleep is such a marker for when something isn't going particularly well. And oftentimes you ask that question to the consultant and they'll think, oh, actually, I'm not sleeping well. What is that about? And then you have a helpful conversation around kind of so what could be triggering that. So how's your well-being? How are you, well are you sleeping? What level of stretch and challenge have you got? Because we put our consultants into quite stretching roles and that's the kind of model, right? We bring you on and move you through the gears in your development uh, cycle. And how satisfying are you finding the engagement in the job? Because if you're being stretched and you're not sleeping, you can't be that satisfied. So we need to take action and look at that. And I think just those questions and noticing kind of changes in behavior, and that can be in terms of temperament, that can be in terms of attention to detail, in terms of enthusiasm or energy for the work, just noticing those points. It's really important. And we've got a duty of care um, to make sure that we're 
being alive to that changes in our consultants. But having that framework allows us to have those conversations before we just jump into content and, oh, I can fix this problem. It's this. The client needs this. I think it's really important that you start with those three questions of checking in on the consultant first. And then that, that in turn over time will build uh, a culture and an environment where it's okay to be not okay and share that you're not okay. I, I love those questions. And, and to your point as well around also watching if someone does answer those and says, yes, they're all fine, but then actually those other markers aren't. And as a young father as well, I completely understand the sleep thing. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, uh, but also it is, you know, sleep, and you'll know better than I, sleep is very important to how we are, how you feel. And yeah. That can often solve a number of things if you are getting enough sleep. It's uh, probably intermixed in London, well, particularly in London and big cities, with alcohol consumption and late nights, which is often something, whether it's part of the job or not, is something many indulge in. Yeah, yeah, that is true. That's very true. I think um, as well. I mean, my thing is, is if you're not sleeping, you are less resilient. There's no, no flowery language. We'll get away from the fact if you're not getting enough sleep you are going to be less resilient um and particularly consultant right in a consulting uh, industry you, you the expectation is you're resilient the expectation is you bring that can do the ex- expectation is you bring that positive energy to often quite challenging programs and difficult uh, client circumstances you can only do that if you're if you're looking after your core and for me core is kind of sleep and energy right I massively agree, and, and I think your your physical health analogies are, are the ones that always bring that to focus. Because you, know, you, you mentioned the, your Peloton, if you did that seven days a week, you know, for ten hours a day, eventually you'd you'd pull a muscle or do your hip. Whereas actually, yeah, sometimes we don't we don't think of sleep in that same way. You think, oh, I can. You know, it's not how the world is now, but kind of Wolf of Wall Street. You know, sleeps for the week. You know, I, I'm a consultant. I can burn <laughs> you know, burn a candle at both ends, and, and actually, like you say has an impact on resilience and, and all of the things that can come with that. I, I think there's a, a fantastic you know, deep dive into, into mental health. And thank you for sharing that because it is, it's a really powerful topic and one that I don't think anyone has shared and, and just needs more talking about. And particularly given the journey you've been on, you know, you've been at the sharp end of that, so to speak. So thank you. I, I'm keen to turn to, and you touched on it in your, your story around you know, inverted commas even with that you you made partner but i also i understand that your journey to partner it wasn't that simple kind of linear path that everyone talks about or you know wishes they had and and i i I understand it it, at one point you actually left barclay so i did yeah maybe for our listeners can you just share that part of the journey and yeah what what led you to leave because it sounds like you're on the edge of making partner and then you went no this isn't for me so Tell us the story. Yeah, so so I wasn't quite on the edge of making part. I'd been here kind of four years, and it kind of coincided with me becoming a dad for the first time, right? So so the context was a client that had kind of bought me at Accenture, had bought me at Barclay. Then I remember kind of in the pub on a Sunday afternoon saying, what would it take you to leave Barclay? You're about to have a, a, a kid. Consulting isn't going to be great for having a newborn. What would it take for you to come and work for me in my new new organization? And for kind of giggles, I was like, okay, well, it would need to be something around like this in terms of transformation, head of transformation. It would need to be a significant salary to make my leap of faith out of consulting. It's all I've known, right? And then he kind of just was quite tenacious and persistent around coming back with a, an offer around what I'd asked for, right? And it's, and it's giving me everything I'd asked for. 
And then it became really real really quickly. And it was 10 minutes drive from my house. I thought, oh, I, it, might, it must be a lot easier being in the line role. I thought I'd have greater control over kind of travel. And it almost felt like too good uh, kind of bespoke opportunity for me not to take it up. So somewhat surprisingly, I found myself in a position of with a heavy heart saying, oh, I'm going to go and do a, a line role and I'm going to, I think I'm done with consulting and it's important that I'm a present hands-on dad based on our earlier conversations around kind of my my kind of high importance of being a present father. So I did. I, I left. I now referred to as the sabbatical. Um, but I left and it was interesting. So I joined another organization in this kind of transformation role and being open for the first three months, I really enjoyed it. Like, I worked far less hours than I'd ever worked before. It was completely different in terms of of, of, a, of a culture, and and interesting, right? Interesting to learn the inner workings of a client, right? Being in a line role. Three months in, though, I, I clearly recognised I'd made a mistake. Why? I really missed Barclay people. I missed that kind of driven, pragmatic, can-do. Let's just fight through walls and get stuff done mentality. I found it quite frustrating being in a peer group of people who are not willing to be bold or take the next decision or a leap of faith, even though the data was clearly showing us what we needed to do. I found the kind of politicking a bit intense as well in terms of, well, okay, that, that's a lot to deal with as well as kind of trying to deliver in your role and build a kind of high performing team. And then also, I had people on underperformers on my team who were my problem that I had to kind of, and there was no easy way to navigate that, right? With a consultant, you can kind of roll on, roll off jobs and kind of, you're not kind of permanent, obviously. I found all of those things quite difficult. And I looked at my development and my rate of development in future years thinking, I'm not going to develop. I was I am by no means the finished article even now. So back then, I was definitely not the finished article in terms of the range of experiences and learning I've done. And I just thought, I'm going to really stagnate here. This isn't this isn't going to pull me through the gears of my professional development. But I had, and I, was, I, I picked up the bat phone pretty early on for two of the big programs I was a sponsor of and hired Barclay into those programs. So I was seeing day in, day out, kind of Barclay and delivery, which also was another point. The other thing, if I'm really honest, is is I struggled with our rates as a consultant pre my kind of time in industry. So back to that insecure overachiever, there was times when I felt quite uncomfortable about the rate I was getting charged out on. Um, and I think that's wrapped up in kind of self-confidence issues and self-esteem issues back then. But there was something hugely clarifying about then being a client. There was something hugely clarifying around buying a big five army of 30 people and realizing, okay, I'm paying for a lot of people to learn on the job here. And that kind of landed expand mentality, which as a client really frustrated me. The day rate contractor that's paid a huge amount, but will leave will leave that office at five o'clock every day, regardless of if the roof's on fire. I then became really centered on now I get our, it sounds kind of cliche, but now I get kind of our special sauce. I understand the difference. I understand what your what clients are actually buying when they buy Barclay, which is different. We are reassuringly expensive. Um, so, but it is a different model, right? We don't hire juniors. We are experienced people with good value set, high EQ, high IQ. It is a different, I believe, a, a very different offer in the market. And coming back, so let's fast forward. So six months, eight months into the period, I, I was re recognizing that this isn't the career leap of faith that as uh, as roasting as I thought it would be, this is not for me. And the partners just showed a complete lack of ego. 
right? They were just very open. I'm like, just come back. Just come back. Which I think shows them, A, not being kind of obsessed with, uh, well, you made your bed, you're going to lie in it. There's no ego there. And genuinely doing the right thing for me and kind of looking after me. So so I did. I came back within within 11 months, actually. I came back and I came back very clearly signposting that I'll come back, but I don't want a, a kind of ceiling to be put on me because I've stepped into industry. Um, so for me, that was partner, right? I, I, I wanted to know coming back that partner wasn't off the table because I'd kind of scratched that itch of wouldn't a line rule be fantastic? And, and in many ways, I, I do think it makes me a better and stronger consult. It made me a better and stronger consultant. Um, so the whole weirdness of rates went away. Uh, I was far more confident in our offer. And I do think there's something powerful about sitting across from a client and saying, I've been in your shoes. Like I've been with a failing program and, and looking at a third party to come in and support me. I, I understand the choices you've got on the table um, and being able to articulate why ours is quite a different offer and choice. So I think it accelerated my comfort with our model. And as I say, I came back and then kind of years later, um, entered into the partner process. So the story has a happy ending, which is good to hear, Chris. I, I love what you said or, to your point around actually how it gave you that client side perspective, because yeah. it's hard to get that any other way. Obviously, you can you can kind of imagine and empathize, but it sounds like that actually was almost the making of your consulting career was seeing what it's like the other side. And suddenly, like you say, why Barclay is what it is, does what it is, because you've seen that. Yeah. And I think the key question was, I would look at suppliers and partners that I were working with in the organization I went to. And the question for me is, is have they got my and, and the organization's best interests at the core of everything they're doing? Right. And it's like kind of doing the right thing. But are they really, are they behaving like a partner? Or are they behaving like a supplier? And that for me is really different. And, and kind of the transactional behavior of some of the organizations I worked with when I was in the, in the line role the land expand thing, that trying to be all things to all people, a lot of those reflections, again, help me be centered on, I mean, right here, right now here, like if a consultant is doing a job and it's a 12-week piece of work and we've done the work in eight weeks, we roll ourselves off that job and give the client the money back, right? Because that's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do for the client. It's the right thing to do for my consultant who won't be kind of spinning their wheels. And it builds that longer term trust, right? We're not in it for a, we've got to make, again, it's a a symptom of none of us having a target and sales targets, but we're not trying to just get the next quarter's revenue. We're we're interested in the longer term, and therefore we're interested in person rather than the brand above the door of the organisation. So I think that is a different. I find it a very different way of doing consulting. Yeah, and you you mentioned the point around ego and the partner's ego. I don't want to call it necessarily ego, but did you have any concerns? picking up that phone and saying, yeah, I got it wrong. I want to come back. Or was that never a, a doubt or a, never a concern for you? I think there was a there was something in my head around stupid male pride of, I've got to stick it out a year. I've got to stick it out a year, which is just ridiculous. But because of the connectivity and the openness, and I sh- should have mentioned, one of the partners had offered coaching for me in my first 100 days of the organization into the line role as well. Uh, and that was helpful. That, again, provided that kind of, clarity of thought and space uh, to work things through. But at six months, I had to be authentic and, and own 
my reality and own the decision. And that was easy to do with the partners that were I was in dialogue with. I suspect this is something, again, because you're very open with your story, others have asked you about, is what advice do you give to people now thinking about whether that line move is for them? Because I know many people who it's something they do. I don't know how many of those have yeah, had the same experience of you as you. For some people, I'm sure it is the right decision. But what advice do you give people to almost test whether it is right before they make that leap? Yeah, so in no way am I saying that a line rule wouldn't be great for some people. Clearly, that, that works for some people and that's an avenue. Uh, there's a couple of things. I think be really honest and open about your motivations for thinking of leaving and really work through and be quite vulnerable around what you need because it might be that you just not articulated that well enough to your current uh, employer and for me the biggest thing was culture so yes there's you can be head of transformation anywhere right i'm i consider myself a transformation specialist but the culture in which i work and thrive and get ahead on it is more important than the the job itself in many ways for me so i think it's about being really mindful about how important is that culture to you and your kind of satisfaction and your sense of belonging and your conditions for success. And for me, that being around people that are driven and can do and bold and pragmatic is, is of paramount importance to me. That's where I get the fire in my belly because I'm around people that can get stuff done. So do your research, right? Speak to people in that organization, really understand the culture, really understand kind of what are your conditions for success and will they be realized in that organization? I think that would be the biggest advice I would give. I think great advice there, Chris. And interestingly, to your point, it's actually, I don't know if you, uh, you might say it's the intrinsic elements, you know, to your point, it's the culture, it's not the money or, you know, because no. it sounds like in your story, your head was turned by, like you say, the title, the money, the location, but actually it was the intrinsic things, the culture and, and drive that was really what was important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I guess going back to the map, first point i'm a problem solver right so i want to be exposed to complex problems i want to work through complex problems meeting new interesting people in different environments for a line a line rule wouldn't give me that so it is it, important that for me it was important to I've got another 20 years of my career i want to be <laughs> i want to continue to be stretched around kind of complex challenges and transformations i don't want to get too comfy i completely know what you mean and i think for our last topic today because i want to just pick up on because you mentioned it throughout around your view on fatherhood and how your upbringing has made one of your non-negotiables be you want to be a present parent. And it's interesting as well, because again, stereotypes in our industry, long hours, late nights, it doesn't happen so much now, but lots of travel. But I know, and I've seen posts from you on LinkedIn, you make a big thing of making sure you're there for your son's events and important moments. How do you do that? So it is important. So I parent loudly. I parent loudly at Barclay. So for a significant period, I had a, a, a kind of a thing where I left at four o'clock on a Monday and I never tend to work in the office on a Monday because I can then pick both the boys up, take one of my kids to football um, and do the whole evening fun with the boys. I will leave when my youngest has got a Zumba show and I'll let everybody know I'm leaving to go and watch Zachary and his Zumba show. And I think that's important to parent loudly and challenge microaggressions of parents. And one of the things I'm quite passionate about is challenging microaggressions for people that don't have children. They're like, oh, half day is it? And, and it's like, 
not meant in a malicious way. It's not meant in a uh, combative way. But that lands. But when you're when you're leaving to do something with your child, or you've got to do pickup, or you've got to kind of rebalance your day because your partner's away with work, it's those kind of things that can just sit there with you and think, "Oh my goodness, do people think I'm not committed because I'm having to have some flex in my day to do pickup?" Knowing full well that that person will then probably get back online and finish off what ever they needed to do. So challenging those behaviours and. Also, I say to my consultants, which is something my grandparents told me, is your kids will only be interested in you for the first 10 years of your life, right? <laughs> They're only going to think you're great and a hero for the first 10 years of your life. So capitalize on that period. Be present in that period because when they're teenagers, they're going to be thinking about boys, girls, everything else other than their parents. So really maximize the time you've got with them in that first 10 years. And it is important. It is important when I find out when I'm with my kids that I do put the phone in a separate room because it's so easy to get back on email. And when you're doing bath time and bedtime, it's it's so easy to be distracted, so easy to take a call. I, when I'm setting up a kind of assignment and a project with one some the consultants i ask them what are your red periods what are your actually that doesn't work for me because i take florence the ballet on a, a, a wednesday evening I'm like, it's important to understand and contract like what are your red periods so you can manage balance and i also think it's important not to be too prescriptive around what balance is for that working parent because it's very different for everyone and depending on your circumstances and your child's kind of age and phase of life Balance is different for every single parent at Barclay. And I think it's important that we, so we've built two networks. We've got a working dad's network and a part-time working network where our consultants share kind of hints and tips around what works for them and what doesn't work for them. How do they help themselves? How do they not help themselves? What can partners do more of to lean into? And what can the wider uh, kind of organization do more to lean into and be kind of mindful of? And I think we empower people. I'd like to believe we empower people to make the right choices for them and their family and their clients. And I think COVID helped us, right? COVID helped us in regards to, in the old days of being kind of present at the client site four days a week and a degree of FaceTime, right? I think we've demonstrated an ability and an agility to kind of manage balance in a different way while still putting the client's needs absolutely front and center, but managing to balance all of those elements. And it's not easy. And also just being understanding when it's a bit of a shit show, right? Understanding everything works when everyone's healthy and no one's getting refused from the nursery gate because they've got a temperature, right? But we're just building in the flex and flexibility to understand that that's going to happen and it's not fatal and we can work through things. I love that. And and yes, given where we are with our son, I, I definitely know that nursery gate issue. And your point on the red periods, and I actually want to touch on red periods and microaggressions because I've heard... I really like that phrasing of red periods. And I've heard of microaggressions in a, I guess, a race or a gender context, not a parenting one. Maybe we start there because there's, again, to think of what someone listening to this might say is, it's great, you've got that internally, but then you've got clients and clients have expectations. And actually, again, you've lived this, your consultants are living this. How do you yourself or how do you guide people to, to almost manage those relationships so that they can do a client-facing role, which has those expectations that, they, and that come with it, and be that present parent that they want to be. Yeah. So for me, it boils down to trust, and it boils down to a belief from the client that our consultants are going to do right by them and do the right thing by them, and that, yes, there'll be compromises in terms of timescales or days when actually, for 
personal family reasons, you can't be present at the client site, but there's that trust and belief that you're doing right by them and that their requirements and needs and worries are with you and sat with you and you're working them through. I very seldom see now, I think it has changed kind of post-COVID, I very seldom see now unreasonable requests of our consultants to be at site for X period of time. And even in even in banking industries and even in reg industries, but where there is an unrealistic or a difficult request, it's our job to call that out in the assignment setup and have that honest conversation with the client to say, based on our consultant and kind of where they are in their phase of life, that's got to be quite difficult. Let's work through how must have that is to be four days. And it's our job to set the consultant up for success and have that conversation early on. So it's not a surprise to anyone that Johnny needs to go at four o'clock on a Monday routinely, but Johnny always makes up the time and kind of manages to an outcome rather than manages to an hour. I think that's a, an important distinction to make as well. Uh, I think a really good point. And, and like you say, it's, it's outcomes, not inputs, if you like, which I guess talks to your red periods and your, your microaggression points, because it, it sounds there like if everyone's open about what those red periods are, so it might be school pickup or nursery or, or sports day, it's much easier. And is that almost the way you, you try and advise consultants to not deal with microaggressions, but set them up for success in those environments where maybe the rest of the team aren't parents or, you know, they're people who had kids, they've flown the nest and they've kind of forgotten what that period of life's like? Yeah. So I think I'd encourage everyone to be kind of open and parent loudly. Like, don't be ashamed of kind of the compromises that you're going to make or the kind of trade-offs that you're going to make in that period. And that's easy for me to say, but if I put myself in the shoes of a returning mom from Matley, for example, right, who has just done an amazing thing, bringing a bringing a, a wee human into the world and has had a lot of time out of work and then is coming back and, my goodness, it's understandable that some of our consultants are kind of taking a bit of time to readjust to being back in, back in the workplace. And after having time out, they kind of want to come back and kind of restart their career, do complex, challenging work. So when they're in that headspace of kind of trying to deal with the new reality, trying to deal with new balance, what they really don't need is some kind of quirky, funny comment around, oh, you really have come back part time or, oh, half day. Like, that, that's just not needed, right? So here at Bartley, we, we, I mean, I, I'm pleased to say that these are rare occurrences. But it's in all of us to kind of challenge and educate that comment. It's in all of us, not just the consultant who's kind of receiving the comment, to kind of challenge and educate that. And it's one of the scenarios, actually. So we have a kind of a values session periodically in the firm, and we're having it later this month. And we've got a whole bunch of scenarios around kind of Barclay values. And this is the scenario. How would you react in the situation? And, and that's one of the examples that we put in there, just to help people be mindful of their impact on others and mindful of if someone's returning to work after a period of mat leave be more clued up to the fact they might be a little bit sensitive around kind of comments around when they have to leave the office. Because in the moment, while I was trying to get that new world order and that new balance, they probably do feel a bit awkward about the fact that they're going to do pickup. So don't compound that with some kind of amusing comment that could land badly. And I, I love the link to values and, and that parenting loudly, I, I guess also comes from you know, people like yourself being that role model. Because if others in the firm see someone like you who's a partner in the firm doing this, it, it gives them that permission to say, well, actually, yes, I can leave for the Zumba show or for football or yeah. whatever the, the thing is. Because yes, as, as we all know, 
the life of a consultant, which when you're young starts as an eight till six day, is not particularly conducive of uh, family life when you're a bit older. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, Chris, we've covered a ton of ground and I'm keen to bring us to a close. There's so much in there for people who have been listening. And these last questions, these are ones I ask all my guests. And just given your your journey into the world of consulting, through the world of consulting, I'm, I'm really interested and excited for your answers. So the, the first question is is about books. And I should also say, because I've had a number of guests who don't read books as sort of a you know, as a habit. If there's other YouTube things, you know, apps, whatever it is, please call them out. But what is the book or books that you find yourself giving to others or going back to most? And, and why is that? I think the book that I've recommended the most recently is Atomic Habits. Very good book. So, yeah. So it's it's helpful for me. Why do I like it? Because it's practical. It kind of drives a practical mindset around kind of just, again, healthy habit forming elements. So I recommend that quite often, actually, to, to, to kind of friends and colleagues. And I'm trying to <laughs> try to pull that into parenting as well and thinking, right, how can I take the kind of positive habit stacks to the children as well as uh, myself and, and the work? So, yeah, I think that's um, that kind of focus on kind of building healthy habits and building uh, rewiring neurologically to do kind of more conducive and supportive kind of habitual tasks. It's definitely something I recommend. Fantastic recommendation. And, and to your point, that that stacking, do some homework, then you can have some Fortnite, I imagine, is, yes. is one you've used. And, <laughs> and, and actually, to our, to our point, to your, you know, to your, what you shared around mental health, that that book is also interesting because it shows how negative habits can be formed as, as well and actually shines a light on that. Yeah, yeah. And then the final question, and this could be a recap of things we've shared, it could be new, but you have three people in front of you. And you mentioned, you know, obviously you'd been at Accenture. So to use Accenture parlance, one of them is an analyst, you know, yourself coming in at that graduate level. One would be manager grade. So, you know, kind of the middle of the grades before partner. And the final person would be someone approaching partner. And now, obviously, you have people like that at Barclay. So that could be one of your colleagues here who's, who's going to make that step. And the question is just what one piece of advice would you give to each of them? So I think for the analyst, someone starting out in the career, understand that everyone around you also doesn't have all the answers. <laughs> like be comfortable in the fact that everybody else around you is not the finished product. Everyone's work in progress and everyone else is trying to figure out the answers. And don't waste that effort and time thinking that you, you don't deserve to be there. You're there because you're there and you deserve to be. I think for a manager, kind of manager, senior manager level, I think it's important at that point that you, you have a clear sense of kind of what are your conditions for success? What are the conditions that you need to thrive in? And what do you want to be known for? And also be kind. Be kind to people who haven't got it all figured out that are more junior to you. Be kind to the person that's not dropped the ball. I think the impact that a bad manager can have on someone is huge. And that's something I think when you're in that kind of throes of delivery and you're up against deadlines, I've seen on occasion kind of that kindness pit drifts away. Um, so be kind to those that work around you. And, and someone that's approaching kind of partner level is, a, I think, the la last kind of persona. I think it's um, thinking about the change you want to bring. Think about what you needed as you came out through your career. And think about how you're going to deliver that to the people that you will then manage and, and kind of coach and counsel and kind of be the change that you wanted early on. I think that's also really helpful. Well, I think, Chris, some great advice for us to finish on. So thank you for today. Thank you for being so open with your story. And, and I'm, I'm sure it's going to help people who are listening. I think the very last thing to ask, if anyone wants to, to find out more about 
you get in touch, wants to find out about Barclay, where would you point them to? Where can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, very open to messages on, on LinkedIn or email chris.southwell at barclaypartnership.com. Amazing. We'll put both of those in the show notes so anyone who's listening wants to get in touch, they can go and find those. And Chris, all that's left to say is thank you very much and all the best for the rest of your week. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks very much. Cheers, Chris. Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and, and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in, in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing and they wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website createengage.co.uk where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you you can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing i hope you enjoyed today's episode of climbing consulting if you have any guest recommendations comments ideas thoughts on how i can make this show better for you just drop me an email it's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.